This is Truth Encounter, and as our study leader Dave Wurtson continues our discussion of Deuteronomy chapter 19, he shares what we can learn about God and how he wants us to deal with tragic situations from this chapter. What can we do when we feel like killing someone? The God who's really there cares about our everyday kind of life. He cares about the events that take place in our town. And he cares about the accidents that take place. And what he's trying to do is that he's trying to enter into this situation and he is trying to make sure that, that something even worse doesn't happen. And some of the things that strike me about this is, first of all, I become aware in this passage about the power of rage. Did you hear what I just said about the avenger of blood becoming so angry? that he runs after the person who slew his brother in an accident and then he takes his life because he's so angry? Isn't that realistic? When Mary's brother David was killed by a drunk driver, and I've shared this with you before, Mary's brother Frank has told me several times he had a rage inside of him when, he, when that guy came near him and he smelt the alcohol on the guy that killed his brother. Like when Frank turned around and looked at his brother and knew that his 16-year-old brother was dead. And then he got out of the car and the guy that hit him came near him and there was alcohol in his breath. Frank said, I was going to kill him. And Frank's a big, strong guy. He could have done it. And it was only the grace of God that kept Frank from doing that. The Bible's realistic. When your brother's been slain, and that wasn't even an accident, that's the idea of the avenger of blood. And there was someone that made a decision to drink and to get drunk, and they'd done it over and over again. That's not just like being out in the woods and having an accidental thing. So the Bible's very realistic about rage. And it says we need to be careful about rage. And God says that this avenger of blood, there needs to be a city that will give time. Let that temper cool down. And I want to talk to myself as a man... One of the struggles in my life is my temper. And that's one of the struggles in some of your life. When I was a little kid, and I use an illustration I've used with some of you in the past, that I haven't used it in quite a while, but it, it really will show. Like I remember as a kid playing electric football with my little brother, Ron. And it was one of those boards, you know, you'd plug it in, they'd go like this, and then the little players would go. Well, I had all kinds of intricate little plans that I would use in my electric football game. My little brother was an idiot in football. He never played football. I was the first string quarterback on our midget league team, even when I was 10. My little brother was seven, and he didn't know anything about football. He'd line his players up any old way, turn on the machine, he'd run for a touchdown every time. I got so mad at him one time, I took that electric football game, and I raised it up and smashed it right over his head. Bent the whole thing, ruined my electric football game. Boy, did my mother tear into me on that one. As a kid in junior high school, our football coach used to tell us, Dave, and then he'd tell us other guy that was playing with me, you guys need to get really mad because then you're good. I have to watch, you all know this. Even when I coached Josh and John with Dave Lowry, in the heat of a battle, I can cross a line and the Lord's done a lot in my life through the years. But internally, I can be like this. I've got to win. 
makes me angry not to win. I want to win. And I can be playing myself or just let a split second where it becomes, this isn't just playing hard. I'm going to get you. That's a temper. It's anger. I've all shared with you about when I killed the cat with a rock. Remember that? <laughs> that was a story that went out all over the country. And I've had every lover of cats sent me a letter one after another about how could I ever have done that. But some of you are wrestling with it. I want to share something with you about anger. If you're angry inside, be careful. In fact, I want to challenge you to hear my words. Would you turn your anger over to the Lord? God says, vengeance is mine. Because anger is a very interesting thing. You see, if, if you've got a deep-seated temper deep inside your life, it means that you're, you're angry with God, you're angry about the way things are going, you're angry about the accidents, you're angry about life. What you're really saying is, God, I don't like the fact that you're God. I don't like the way you do things. The Lord wants you to be really honest about that. You don't overcome your anger by being sweet, gentle, and kind of saying, I'm not angry, I'm not angry. You've got to really be brutal with your anger. You've got to face it. You've got to think about it. I got angry with, with Mary over Christmas about something. that you know She was really chewing on me about something. It was, I just could not get through to her about something. Still haven't completely. <laughs> and over Christmas, man, I was, I was really upset with her about it. You know what I noticed? The whole atmosphere comes over our home. That's the way it is in your home. You know what else starts to happen? Accidents start to happen. You do dumb things. I want you to realize the tremendous power of anger. If you're angry inside, you start to do dumb things. Some accidents in automobiles take place just because someone's angry. And they're not angry at anybody that, that they ran into or anything. They're just angry. And it throws off your coordination. It's just the way life is. And this text is being brutally honest about the reality of the power of that temper. Well, our city of refuge today is the dear son of God. You need to run to him if you're anger, angry and talk to him. You might even need to find a friend. It says confess to one another. Sometimes you need to pour out your anger to somebody. You need to have somebody confidential, someone that you can see, someone you can look in their eye and just pour out the acid of your soul. And let it go. And let the Lord be God. It's one thing I want you to really pray about hot tempers. Because through my life in the ministry, I've seen hot tempers really hurt, even take life. And this text is being honest about that. He's being honest about the fact that it can happen. God knew that the brother who lost his brother in an accidental death would be furious about it. So he provided a city where the person that had, that, that had just by acting and taken a life could run. And then saner minds and saner hearts could look into the situation and honestly find out what happened and justice could be done. We need to think about ways in our own society, in our own lives, that we can do some of that. And I want you to see that the text is not just entertainment. It's talking about real people with real anger, with real tempers, with real problems that deal with it and deal with it in a careful, careful, wise way. I want to talk to you about a real problem I have with this passage, though, that goes even beyond the hot tempers, and I'm glad that God deals with it. You know what bothers me in this problem? Why do axe heads fly off handles? 
That's what really bothers me about this passage. Let's suppose it was my brother Ron that was out in the forest. And Ron and I have you know, worked in the woods and we built fences with chainsaws. Let's suppose it's my brother Ron who gets killed because some idiot has an accident. He's using a chainsaw and he doesn't look what he's doing and he swings around and hits my brother in the head and snuffs him right out. You know, that would be one of the hardest things in the world for me to get over. Why accidents? Some of you are wrestling with that. If God is good and God's the sovereign over all things, then why do accidents even happen? Why do they even happen? I read an article this week that a daddy wrote. It said, why bad things happen to good Christians. And he's a pastor over in Irving, Texas, a fellow named Dunn. He wrote like like this in the article. It's It's from an oral talk that he gave to a group of other pastors. He says this, for Christmas in 1972, I gave my wife a gold watch. On the back of that watch were inscribed these words, Christmas 1972, to Kay from Ron with Love, a very good year. I didn't know it was going to be the last good year we would have for quite a while. Shortly after that, our 13-year-old son, Ron Jr., began to have personality changes, and we began to have a great deal of problems with him. At this time, our church was going through what I believe was a genuine revival, and so I knew that this had to be the devil attacking us. We tried it all. Prayer, rebuking the devil, binding the devil, stationing angels. I would have worn garlic around my neck if I thought it would help anything. But the situation only worsened. One day on the way home from church, he ran away for two weeks. We had no idea where he was. We found out later he had hitchhiked from Dallas, Texas to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Then this situation got worse. August 1975. We were on vacation and Ronnie attempted to take his own life, so we took him to the hospital there in Fort Smith, Arkansas. They said they would not take him unless we were willing to let them put him in a psychiatric ward for two weeks. But Christians were not supposed to go to psychiatrists. Yet Ronnie was in such bad shape that we had no choice. So we agreed to the two weeks in the psychiatric ward, and I'll never forget the day we were to meet with a psychiatrist. I was all ready to be told I was a lousy father, and that my wife was a lousy mother, and that all of Ronnie's problems existed because I had brought him up in a preacher's home. I have never been so nervous in my whole life. Yet, you know, none of that happened. The doctor said your son is suffering from a mood disorder caused by a chemical imbalance in his blood. Later, it came to be known as manic depressive. But in 1975, you did not hear much about that. They put him on three drugs, lithium, which was a new miracle drug at the time, stelazine, and elevil. The amazing thing was that it worked, and we saw a change in him just like that. Ronnie was happy, too. Because he was glad to know that there was something wrong with him, that there was a reason. Previously, he would cry and say, Dad, I don't know why I do these things. So when we found out that there was something you could put your finger on, something you could nail down, we rejoiced. God had given Kay and I promises. Back on the very first day Ronnie ran away from home, Kay came up to me that night and gave me a verse from Scripture that God was going to preserve him and everything was going to turn out all right. In August of 1975, I knew God had assured our prayer and everything was going to be all right. 
But on Thanksgiving Day of that same year, Ronnie took his own life. Kay had been finding his dosage in his shirt pocket when she did the laundry, and we knew that he had been missing it. Then there was a flare-up, and he left home. We were away visiting our folks on Thanksgiving Day, and when we came back that night, I knew something was wrong. My secretary and her husband, Don, were there, and Don met me in the yard and said, Ronnie is dead. Chemical imbalances, accidents. Why do pastors have sons that can take their life? You know, as believers, it's really to have simple answers. It's really to try to get all the ducks lined up in the row and say it's because of this, and it's because of this, and it's because of this. But you know, I think one of the things we need to realize is why do axe heads fly off accidentally? And if there's a good God in heaven, why didn't he stop all the miscellaneous accidents? Why didn't he stop chemical imbalances? Why didn't he stop babies that are born with, with birth defects? Why didn't he stop some things like this? I don't know. I don't know. And you don't know either. It's the world that we live in. It's the way things are. This pastor goes on to say this. He started to learn that the question was not why, but the question was, it's happened. Now what am I going to do? The question is not why, 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 but what am I going to do? And am I going to curse my Lord Jesus? Am I going to turn away from him? And he described in the rest of the article how he went into very serious depression because when something really bad happens, that's the way we respond as human beings, even if you're godly pastors. He talked about going to get help from other believers that he could really talk to and counselors that knew how to help him. And he talked about slowly but surely the Lord started to show him that I don't have the answer. In fact, that all the answers in the world really don't bring my boy back. But he said that he began to learn that he needed to ask the question, okay, Lord, it's happened. Now, how are we going to get through? Now, some of you are saying, David, well, if that's the way God is, I'm just going to curse him and just forget it. I want you to stop and think for a minute. What's that going to do for you? Say, I don't believe that God of the Bible is there. I don't, believe that. I don't believe that he gave his son to die on the cross. I don't believe that he rose again. I don't like him because he allows sons to commit suicide. I don't, I don't like a God that will allow that to happen. Where are you going to be then? You see, well, I think that, I think that there's just nothing, that life doesn't make any sense at all, that we, people just die and they're just like animals. And why do you care so much about your son? If there's just nothing, if it's just it, if we just live here and we're here by accident and we die by accident, who cares? Then why do you care so much? Why do you even get so mad at this guy that you want to get upset with? The very fact that you get mad at him shows that he really is there. It shows that you're not just an it. It shows that right and wrong. Think the very fact, you're very angry that you're so upset about something unjust that, that happened shows that this guy that I'm trying to talk to you about really is here. That's why you care. That's why it bothers you so much. You know what Mary and I are learning to do? Where else can you run? I'm not God. Someday we can sit down and let him talk to us about, 
about why sometimes when we pray, marvelous miracles take place and people are raised up and other times it doesn't. And it, it looks like nothing happened at all. I don't know the answer to that. But I want to share something with you. The God of the Bible doesn't explain. He doesn't tell Job all the reasons why he allowed the suffering. He revealed himself. He revealed the mystery of his creation. And he told Job, he says, Job, do you really want to be the creator? Can you really look after the, the lion and the lioness out there in the wild taking care of their cubs? Can you really guide that? Can you really control the frolicking of the, of the whales up in the northern Atlantic? Are you the one that really designed hippopotamuses and, and made all of the little insects? Can you really, do you really want to be in control of all of that? And God just simply said, I am God, and I do take responsibility, and you're a man. You're not God. The New Testament goes on and says this, the God that's really there, though he never explained to us all the reasons why he allowed evil and accidents and suffering to take place. The God of the Bible does reveal that he didn't stay up in heaven in a sterilized, protected environment so he would never have to experience any accidents or any hurt or any problems. The incredible story of the Bible is that that great God, who's totally removed from all of this mess, became a little baby and suffered the worst mess that any of you could ever suffer. He was the only totally perfect being. He's the only little boy who really was totally innocent, who you could look in his eyes, and he was the epitome of angelic purity and eternal goodness. He was the only man that grew up and didn't destroy that angelic youth. He's the only man that any one of you women could be alone with him, and you could look in his eyes, and you could totally, absolutely trust him, because no stealing immoral thought ever dominated his life. You are totally safe with him. He's the only man who always had insight into what people were really doing. He's the only man that ever lived that was totally good. And he faced total badness. The ultimate epitome of evil in the person of Satan just poured out the kingdom of darkness against him. Lied about him. Caused all of his friends to abandon him ruined his reputation, punched him, cut him, beat him up, and then stretched him out on the cross. And that's worse than any accident that it could have ever taken place. And I don't understand why that's the way it is, but it is. And Jesus knows all about the craziness and the violence and the agony of what suffering and death and evil can do. And he died all the way. He went all the way. He gave up his spirit. He faced it all. And you can say, well, you know, well, Dave, he knew he was going to be all right in three days. What's the big deal? You don't know what an infinite, eternal being, the Son of God, what it meant for him to suffer. 
We don't know what time really involves when you think about it in terms of the eternal perspective. We don't know what it is to really break an infinite bond of love that's even rationally impossible to break. But his father turned his back on him. So yes, he knew he would rise again from the dead. But it doesn't minimize the suffering that took place. And he did that because he cares about every one of your sufferings. And he cares about all the evil that we have to face. And he went into that grave and then three days later he rose again from the dead. And that's the way it is, as Paul Harvey would say. Now you can come up with an alternative, but you're going to have to decide whether your alternative is real. Whether it's authenticated by the God who's really there, who really rose again from the dead. I decided to put my hope, my confidence in this Son of God. And I don't know why there's accidents. It has something to do with the fact that God gave choices. And we can wrestle with that another time. It has something to do with the fact that God doesn't zap you every time you go to do something wrong. It has something to do with that there has to be some choice in order for there to be love. And evidently the God of the universe thinks closeness and genuine love and true decision making and, and really being a person is so important that he just didn't make you a bunch of good honeybees that do everything just right. It has something to do with that. And when you allow that principle of contingency, that principle of choice, that principle of freedom to begin to operate in the universe and, and they choose against goodness and against truth and against love, then crazy things start to happen. That's just the way it is. Now, you can get mad at God about it, but personally, as I think about it, I think that's really a dumb thing to do. He's the only one who's really good. He's the only one that doesn't make bad choices. He's the only one who has the infinite wisdom to truly be God. This morning, it really had to do a lot. Will I let God be God? Will I let him tell me about his son? And will I come to him? This God is also very just. The next paragraph says that if you take a life, if you destroy a life because you hated them, because you thought about it, because you premeditated it, and then it says that the avenger of blood can take your life. That's also a principle of God. In other words, it's not just a gooey, emotional kind of romanticized love. He's saying that when evil becomes so intense in someone's life that they plan out a murder, and it's not like our own society where you might just have someone that gets angry in a moment of time and he takes a life, and boy, they almost get the same sentence as someone that's a vicious criminal that does it 20 times. We need to really think about our judicial system. Think about it in line with the principles that we've shared today. This chapter is filled with careful evaluation, with careful witnesses that, that are sure that they have their story right. And there's a very careful thought given to someone that's a, that's a vicious, hateful, vindictive person versus someone that might have just lost their temper or, or someone that never planned it. It just kind of happened. It relates to the modern drug scene as well. Like someone that's just plastered out on drugs and takes someone's life. 
Is that the same thing as someone that, that for years plans crime? There's, the Bible's setting up all these differentiations. And some of you that are going to need to enter the legal profession and be policemen and be lawyers and be judges. And we're on juries. We need to be thinking about truth and careful evaluation of witnesses. And we need to stop being so cynical about our culture and realize that we are part of that culture. We need to be light. And instead of being entertained by wickedness, we need to think about its true consequences and what it can lead to. And this chapter wrestles with all of that. And what it is, it's a marvelous chapter about this ultimate God in heaven who really cares about where we're at and what's happening in our town. He cares about what happened here just this past week when, when somebody blew their girlfriend away and rushes down here to Midlothian and then tries to blow his own life away. Isn't it great to know that in the midst of all this craziness that we don't worship a God who stays up there somewhere and doesn't give us any insight about it, doesn't give us any instruction about it? He's in this with us, brothers and sisters, trying to alleviate the suffering, trying to help us to learn to be truthful, trying to help us to learn to be wise, trying to help us to learn what justice is. And I find that though he doesn't answer all my questions, it's much better to stay with him. It is one of the biggest ploys of our present pagan society to cause those of us that do believe that Jesus has come to the world, that he is the Son of God, that he did die on the cross for our sins, that he did rise again from the dead, and that anyone who will just trust his word and his promise can be certain of forgiveness and can be assured of a place in heaven. The news sounds so simple and it sounds too good to be true. And yet it's the heart and soul of what the scriptures teach. And the idea that that, that truth, that ultimate truth, needs to be locked up in the four walls of any church is diametrically opposed to the teaching of scripture. And I believe that the great need of our society is for doctors and lawyers and nurses and school teachers and, and mechanics and factory workers and on and on, whatever our professions might be, we need to go into the marketplace and stand strongly for Jesus. Till next time, this is Dave Wurtson reminding you that you have a refuge in Jesus Christ alone.